now having come into John chapter 13 last Lord's Day. We are now in this part of the evening. One author whom I, whom I love refers to this part of John 13 as the, the traitor unmasked. And certainly in the heart of this passage we see the the beginning, of the, uh, the beginning of the end of Judas Iscariot. We'll talk about that. But the astonishing detail, the astonishing vividness of these chapters as we are invited breathtakingly into the intimacy of Jesus' last night on earth prior to the cross. I've, I've just entitled this section, this section from John uh, 13, verse 18, down to the end of the chapter 13. I've just entitled it The Disciples. Because what we see here now is, is this, this beginning, this intense time of training. Last week we covered what I believe to be the most strategic and vivid leadership lesson ever taught by anyone, anywhere. As Jesus, through the metaphorical, or the literal, but extending into the metaphorical act of washing his disciples' feet, shows us what leadership actually looks like when it's done in a manner consistent with the kingdom. He's just said to them in verse uh, 16 and 17, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And now verse 18. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, 18 through 38, at one, at one big step. I'll be taking it as I go. So Roman numeral one, the commissioned disciples, verses 18 through 20, John chapter 13. I'm not speaking to all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place. So that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Again, Roman numeral one, the commissioned disciples. Letter A, the Lord's initiative. Just verse 18, first part. I'm not speaking to all of you. He had just been talking about the, the cleanness before God. That, that is the gift of grace for all who will truly believe for all who will turn from their sin. In fact, the only means to being clean before God is to receive by faith his gracious gift of the salvation that, that from our place in time he provided for us on the cross and proved by his resurrection. From their place in time, it's about to take place. And, and, and whether here on the night before the cross or whether in the time of King David when this psalm that he quoted was written, 
There was an age when people were saved by grace through faith because they looked forward to the sacrifice of the Savior. There was a time when people are saved, there is a time when people are saved by grace through faith looking back at the cross of Jesus Christ. No one was ever saved by the law. Don't ever say that the New Testament is salvation by grace and the Old Testament is salvation by law. By works of the law and by the flesh shall no flesh be justified. If righteousness came by the law, Christ is dead in vain. There is no salvation anywhere from the Garden of Eden till today apart from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. Provided at a moment in time to be sure, but for the salvation of all who will ever be saved, whether they live before the cross or after it. It's all been his initiative all the way through. Don't let the notion of God's initiative in salvation cause you to have a whole bunch of heartburn. All that we're saying is that salvation comes entirely by grace apart from any human effort. Whether that effort is a physical effort, whether that effort is an intellectual effort, whether that effort is a volitional effort. Salvation is of the Lord. It is the Lord's initiative. You've known this. You know this if you know the word of God. Repeat this sentence. I've had you do it before. All that we're saying is we love him because he first loved us. Praise God for his initiative. And then letter B, his instruction. He teaches them. See, what's about to happen is the greatest act of treason in human history. Beyond, beyond any traitor who has ever betrayed anything, anyone, any nation, any idea, the treachery of Judas Iscariot is the greatest act of treason in history. And it might be possible for the disciples who, remember, they're still in a little bit of a state of confusion. They're still wondering, okay, this is, this is dark and he keeps talking about going away and he keeps talking about death. But, but we, we, he, he's here to set up a kingdom, right? They're still asking confused questions about a kingdom. They have not yet settled things down even in their own hearts and heads. And I suspect the Lord's concern was when they see this act of treachery unfold right before their eyes. Not necessarily in the departure of Judas Iscariot that's about to happen, but in John 18 when Judas Iscariot shows back up at the head of the party who've come to arrest Jesus. Might they wonder that the catastrophic treason of Judas Iscariot undermines the credibility of Jesus? How could Jesus have included him among us? How could Jesus have not seen this coming? So here Jesus instructs them that he absolutely sees it coming. He quotes Psalm 41.9. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel. And he says, I'm telling you this now before it takes place. So that when it does take place, Rather than undermine your belief, it will underscore your belief. As one more time, I have described to you precisely what's going to take place before it does. 
It's one more apologetic demonstration by our Savior, one more proof to his disciples that he is who he says he is. And lest there be any concern that the traitor would somehow undermine the mission, he reiterates, letter C on your outline, his invitation. God the Father sent me into the world and I am sending you into the world as my representatives. And those who who receive the message of the gospel that you will be sharing, by so doing, they will receive me. And having received me, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and thus their Savior, they will be in right relationship with the one who sent me. So this thing of of sending and representing this this mission, around here we speak often of of living missionally. And here he's he's reiterating the sentness of his life representing his father and assigning to us one more time the sentness of our lives as we represent him. They were the commissioned disciples. So are we. We come now in Roman 2 to the great tragedy of the counterfeit disciple. The counterfeit disciple. Um, For years and years, uh, my Gail was a bank teller. And uh, from what she has told me, as far as I'm aware, I've never had any interaction with counterfeit currency. But she told me that any bank teller, including her, can spot a fake practically across the room. Even if they look right, they don't feel right. There's lots of ways they give themselves away. A counterfeit is, is more than a mere fake. A mere fake might make no serious attempt to pass itself off as real, but for three years, Judas Iscariot has sought to pass himself off as real. He's not merely fake. He's actually, willfully counterfeit. The counterfeit disciple. Let me read verses 21 through 30. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, One of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Simon entered into him, I mean, Satan entered into him, that is Judas. And Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it 
was night. Now for background, for those of you who might not be familiar with the story, previously, earlier in the week, probably Tuesday night, Judas has met privately with the Jewish leadership. The city of Jerusalem was, was full of pilgrims during the Passover. Perhaps as many as a million extra people crowded into every nook and cranny of the city of Jerusalem. Remember on the previous Sunday, this is Thursday night, on the previous Sunday there had been an adoring crowd crying out to Jesus um, in the hope that he would set up his earthly messianic kingdom. And there's still a lot of, of buzz about Jesus, although it has turned a bit dark as the, as the week has gone on and Jesus has not set up his kingdom. But in a city with all of its residents and perhaps as many as a million pilgrims, they knew that if they tried to snatch Jesus in any public setting, Jesus during the week had been teaching openly and publicly in the temple, but they couldn't touch him there for fear that they would spark a riot. What they needed was information, intel, about where does Jesus go when he's in comparative isolation? Where is Jesus when he is away from the large crowds? Well, his disciples knew that Jesus had frequented the Garden of Gethsemane where he's headed at the end of this evening. Judas knew it too as one of the disciples, albeit a, a, a phony follower, and so the, the thing that Judas sold for 30 pieces of silver was insider knowledge regarding where Jesus went when Jesus was away from the crowd. That deal was struck Tuesday night. In fact, scriptures that refer to that moment say that at that moment, Satan also entered into Judas, literally taking possession of one who was not possessed by the Holy Spirit in love with Jesus. Here he enters him again. Letter A, false belief is troubling. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. It troubled Jesus. It troubled the other disciples. Here, John makes a rare reference to himself. He never calls himself by name. In all the chapters of the Gospel of John, he never says, ooh, that was me. There's, a, there's a, a humility about him. As he writes this Gospel years later, he, he, he won't name himself as a direct participant, but it was he who was that, the disciple whom Jesus loved who was reclining at table at Jesus' side. The author of the gospel would say, that, that was me. And Simon Peter, always willing to get to the bottom of things, motions at him and says, he's talked about someone betraying him, ask him who it is. It's troubling the room. And so Jesus, in fulfillment of Psalm 41.9, offers the, the bread dipped in the, the gravy, the sauce there, and offered it to Judas. A gesture of intimacy and friendship which leads us to letter B, false belief is treasonous. It is treasonous. It's the most magnificently horrible example of missed opportunity in human history. Judas, who heard everything the other disciples heard, 
saw everything the other disciples saw. Had every opportunity the other disciples had. Never fell out of love with the world. Never fell out of love with his own sin. At the end, it becomes evident he never fell out of love with money. 30 pieces of silver was the traditional price of a slave in the slave market. One author said Judas thought he was selling out Jesus. He was, in fact, selling out himself. Oh, the astonishing opportunities you and I have as 21st century residents in North America. Ryan alluded earlier to our, to our safe worship center. The comfortable people around you. The, the systems that make us, make us loud and visible. I have a shelf in my office probably about four and a half, five feet of running shelf space that's nothing but all the Bibles I presently own as physical Bibles. Hardbacks, paperbacks, leather, not to mention the digital resources that I'm just literally uh, surrounded by when I sit down to work. We have access to information, resources, that Judas Iscariot never even had. Oh, the treachery that we would be literate about Jesus, informed about Jesus, exposed to the truth of Jesus, surrounded, in our case, by technology with which we can study Jesus. With the, with the wealth to acquire more physical Bibles than we touch in a month, and yet not to follow him. The treachery. Finally, let her see false belief is tragic. We've already had it well established that the, the 12 and Jesus are gathered on the evening before the time of the cross. The scene has already been set that we're in the, the last meal of the day. We already know it was nighttime. And yet this poignant final sentence of this paragraph, and it was night. John, remembering that moment, remembers the darkness of that moment. is coming from far more than just the, the sun being moved on over the horizon. Oh, the darkness of a moment, the tragedy of a, a life so loaded with opportunity, lost for eternity. I think it's very, very clear that, that, that John remembered that very moment when he was writing the little book of 1 John. 1 John 2.19 gives us the single verse commentary 
on Judas and those like him. It is in the nature of salvation by grace. Hear me carefully. It is in the nature of salvation by grace that that salvation is both permanent and transformative. Those who come to faith in Christ are held by him forever. They are also transformed by that relationship. Therefore, to be clear, while many of us may know some ex-church members, there are no ex-Christ followers. There's never been one. There's no such thing. But some of you might say, I thought I knew a couple of them. I mean, I've known people who were, who were elbow deep in what appeared to be walking with God, who were elbow deep in what appeared to be the functional even life of the church, who, who could tell you about Jesus. And yet today there is no shred of passion to follow the Lord anywhere evident in their lives. Are they not an ex-Christian? Well, Thankfully, John, who watched Judas Iscariot leave the room that night, having had Jesus tell him, probably in a soft voice, it's the one that I'm going to hand this bread to, and he watched Judas walk out. And this is what he wrote. This verse is critical to your understanding of the apparent ex-Christian. They went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. There are no ex-believers. There have always been try and fail non-believers. Judas was never saved. Are you? Are you? And please don't tell me about the time you walked the aisle and filled out a card umpteen years ago. The evidences of the Christian life show up in the persevering Christian life. Are you growing in the fruit of the Spirit? Are you growing in your love for God's people? Are you growing in your passion to follow Christ? Are you growing in your love for the saints? Yes, there was a moment, if you are a Christian, yes, there was a moment back there in your past where you passed from darkness to light, and that moment matters. But that moment is not the proof. Nowhere in Scripture is that moment lifted up as the proof. The proof is the life, the transformed life you are living in Christ today. And the absence of that transformed life you are living in Christ today should give you pause to ask the question. You say, but I hang out with Jesus' people, so did Judas. I know a lot about Jesus, so did Judas. I've even been put in positions of, of Christian responsibility, so was Judas. Which leads us to Roman numeral three, the credentialed disciples. 
the credentialed disciples. Credentials, proof of identity. Who, who are we? Verses 31 through 35. Now, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment. I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Three things here show up as credentials for the disciples of Christ. Other places in scripture, there are other opportunities for us to diagnostically examine our hearts to see whether we are in the faith. I commend to you, this is not in your notes, but if you have any, if you have a willingness to ask hard questions about your own standing and your own salvation before the Lord, I challenge you as a brother who cares about you, take the book of 1 John written by this same human author under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The book of 1 John is written to validate the faith of the believer and to challenge and call out counterfeit faith. You, the book of 1 John, a good reading lamp. And you can, you can know where you stand before the living God if you will ask and allow the word of God to ask those tough but encouraging questions. Here, he gives three marks of an authentic credential disciple. First, our Lord. We follow the glorified Jesus. Now is the Son of God glorified. The Son of Man glorified. He's about to go to the cross. And on the cross, he's going to give the false. Remember, to glorify is to see, see one, see something or someone as they actually are. And on the cross, there will be a full exhibition of the wrath of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the empathy of God, the identity of God, it's all coming at the cross and at the resurrection. The power of God. The most God-glorifying events ever seen in creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his credentialed followers follow him. See him as he is. Love him as we should. Follow as we must. Trust as we can. Our Lord, let her be our longing. Where I'm going, you can't come. Later, he's going to say, where I'm going, you can't come yet. I'm not suicidal. The Lord has been and is being very, very kind to me in the unfolding days of my life. But the longing to be in heaven and be with Jesus is in the heart of every believer. 
You and I don't live here. We are assigned here. This is not home. This is the assignment that we fulfill as we journey through on our way home. First John <laughs> says, don't, don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. If someone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. If you love the world so much that the thought of being in heaven with Jesus forever is somehow unappealing, check your heart. Check your heart. Our longing is a credential. Our love for the Lord is a credential. And let her see our love for one another. As often as we use the word love in this ridiculously bent culture, in this ridiculously fallen world, we must define it. Lest someone be here this morning who does not understand what love is, love is an unconditional, self-sacrificial commitment to the well-being of another. It is not our job to keep one another happy. You ought to be very, very glad that it's not my job to keep you happy. I don't much bother to keep myself happy. Content. But it's not my job to safeguard your emotional state, nor is it your job to safeguard mine. But it is my obligation to you and yours to me and ours to each other that we will do what is required for the well-being of those with whom we are on this journey. And the world has the right. Now the world will get it wrong because the world can't define love. So when the world, for example, sees a church bring church discipline on someone whose life is marked by a persistent, serious, unrepented sin pattern. And we as a church say we are setting that person outside the church. The world out there that doesn't know what love is would say that is an unloving act. But for those of us who are thinking biblically about the character of love, we know that is a supremely loving act because what we're doing is we're hopefully helping that person see they need a savior. That they, that they not go to hell and burn forever. We plead with the gospel. We, we get involved in each other's life when well-being is at stake. Because Jesus Christ came to earth, went to the cross, paid on that cross the sin debt, rose to live forever, now invites all who will repent to follow him and be saved. Don't miss what Judas missed. The credential disciples. And finally, the childlike disciple. Oh, the world of difference between the mistake that Judas made and the mistake Simon Peter is about to make. Simon Peter's gonna find out that when you're in a tiny little room with 13 people, all of whom now 12 people, 
Jesus and 11 guys who love him, it's so easy to make big statements. And then when you get out there in a, in a, in a cold, dark garden surrounded by soldiers, well, it's a bit different. Simon Peter's gonna make a, a classic mistake. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing to be child-like uh, sometimes. But not in Peter's case, not here. First, he missed the point. Let me read this paragraph to you, verses 36 down to the end of the chapter. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. By the way, you will follow me afterward is the Lord's assurance to Simon Peter and to us that Simon Peter is a follower of Christ. Simon Peter is on his way to heaven, though he's gonna stub his toe a few times on the journey. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. Four things this childlike disciple does in this moment. First, he missed the point. He's not yet putting together what's coming. Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? Does that sound like a child? What's up next? What's, what's happening? <laughs> Second, he missed the timing. Now is one of our favorite words, particularly when we're operating from an immature place. Patience is a slow fruit of the Spirit. Why can I not follow you now? <laughs> he missed the timing, he missed the point. Let her see, he overestimated his own capacity. Lord, I'll lay down my life for you. Well, eventually, yes, according to John 21, but in the immediate, nah, nah. You're gonna blow that too. Talk big. Get all excited about your own abilities until the pressure's on. And he got the gracious warning. Simon Peter, you're gonna stumble. You're gonna stumble big. But I am yours and you are mine and I'll be there at the end of your stumbling. Meanwhile, trust Jesus with his timing and his capacity. Well, the most significant and important strategic, potentially tragic takeaway from this passage is the lesson of Judas. We'll have more on this uh, Failure of Peter in the verses or in the hours ahead in Jesus' life. Don't trust shallow, external, behavioral benchmarks as the source of your confidence that you are in Christ. Salvation is eternal. Salvation is sticks, but it is, in all cases, transformational. And that lack of transformation, if in you, must lead you to serious questions. And if you've never before turned from your sin and trusted Jesus, may today be the day you part ways with Judas Iscariot. I'll be down front between the services. Others are in the room. 
I have seen several of our elders are in the room. Others who love Jesus are surrounding you. Don't leave this room without talking with someone should you need to do so.